Anyong Hanshimika. Romans chapter 6, verse 15 through 23. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The word of the Lord. I think that uh, maybe the best thing for us to do as we start this morning is just to name the reality that this passage has some really challenging language in it. Last week's passage had all this language about death, which is hard for us, but this week's passage has all this language about slavery, which may be even harder for us in some ways. Uh, first, just because of our own context here in our uh, country of America with our history of race-based chattel slavery and all of the ongoing effects of that which persist into our present age. That means that entering into any language in the Bible with slavery in it is going to be hard for us. It's, it's jarring language. But second of all, this passage is hard because one of the most powerful narratives in our culture is this idea that everyone should be free to live however they want as long as they don't harm anyone else. You know, in past generations, the most important thing was being a good person. Today, the most important thing is being free. Free to live however you want, express yourself however you want, define yourself however you want. And if anybody's putting any limits or boundaries on your ability to do that, we say, that's oppressive. That's enslaving people. Which means that we look at a passage like this, and it's really easy for us to have this picture of the Apostle Paul as this old, angry, conservative white guy <laughs> who's just trying to restrict people's freedom. And, um, and, and we look at that, and we struggle with that. Not like Jesus. I mean, Jesus we like. Jesus was all about love and grace. But this, this Paul guy, ugh. Which means we come to a passage like this, 
And, and we struggle with it for so many reasons. But you know what's so ironic about this is that in Paul's day, um, that was almost the exact opposite of the way people would have seen the Apostle Paul. In his own day, far from seeing Paul as this super rigid, conservative, angry, moralistic jerk, people would have seen him as, they would have been deeply concerned that he was too progressive. Because Paul was going around telling people, Christians are free from the law. So people would have been really concerned. Paul is telling people to, to live however they want, to cast off all moral restraint. And if people do that, that's going to tear apart the whole fabric of society. So we modern people think, well, Paul is too strict, but ancient people thought he's too loose. You know what the real problem is? is that when you really begin to see what Christianity really is, it doesn't fit any of our categories. And so here's the real question this passage is inviting us to ponder. What if there is a kind of slavery that is more ennobling and liberating than any freedom we could ever conceive because it's based on a freedom that's more binding and captivating than any slavery we could conceive? I was going to put that on the screen for you, because I know that's a mouthful. Let me say that again. What if there's a kind of slavery that is more liberating and ennobling than any freedom we could ever conceive because that slavery is based on a freedom that is both more binding and captivating than any slavery we could ever conceive? What does that mean? We're in a series on Romans chapters 5 through 8, which is all about finding new life in Christ. In this passage, Paul introduces us to a slavery that sets us free. What does that mean? Three things. And if you're a note taker, here's where the points come. It means understanding our spiritual slavery. It means exchanging our slavery. And lastly, it means practicing a new slavery. It means understanding our spiritual slavery exchanging our slavery, and practicing a new slavery, okay? First, this slavery that sets us free means, first, understanding our spiritual slavery. Um, Paul begins this passage, verse 15, with the same basic question that he began last week's passage with. He, he says, what then? Uh, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? This is the question that always comes up with the gospel because the gospel basically says, look, um, you don't earn your way into God's love through obedience to the law. God gives you his love by grace through faith in Jesus and his obedience on your behalf. That's why Paul says that we are not under law, but under grace. This is a completely different paradigm from traditional religion, but, but the question keeps coming up. People say, well, if that's the case, notice what he says at the beginning of the verse, are we to sin? In other words, if God's love for us is, is not based on law but on grace, then doesn't that mean we're free to live however we want? Paul says if you think that, it's because you don't really understand the nature of your spiritual slavery. So look at what he says next in verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Now, here's what he's saying. You are going to, to offer yourself as a slave to something. And at the end of the day, there are only two choices, either God or something else. But those are the only two choices, and you will present yourself as a slave to something. 
In many ways, this is going right back to the book of Exodus. You remember what Exodus is about. God rescues Israel out of what? Slavery. And then he leads them to Mount Sinai, and he gives them the Ten Commandments. And the very first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. God is saying, you're either going to worship me or you're going to worship something else, but those are the only two choices. That's what God is saying. So in this passage, we, you know what the message is, is simple, is, is that you are going to serve something because you're going to give yourself to something and you're going to live for it. And whatever you're living for, whatever you give yourself to, you're going to serve that thing. So the book of Exodus, Paul in this passage, the whole Bible is showing us that you are going to give yourself to something and live for it. And like I said at the beginning, this is challenging for us because in our culture, we really do think that we're free. We, we have this narrative in our culture that says the most important thing, modern Western society is built on this idea that the most important thing in the world is that you should free yourself, you should liberate yourself from any, anything that's externally imposed upon you. Things like externally imposed identities, roles, rules, or limits, that we should free ourselves from all of that. And that idea is everywhere in our culture. So, for instance, there was that famous 1992 Supreme Court decision that said, at, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of, of, of the universe, and the mystery of human life. The heart of liberty is to define one's own concept of existence and meaning in life. In fact, maybe the most uh, famous recent expression of this idea is from that world-renowned Scandinavian activist and thought leader, Queen Elsa from Frozen, who sang, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Friends, this idea is just baked into our culture, so much so that it wouldn't even occur to us to question it. Which, if you think about it, you realize that fact alone is showing us that maybe we're not as free as we think we are, because that idea has been externally imposed upon you without your consent. But even more than that, here's the thing. Even if you are able to, to liberate yourself from any externally imposed identities, roles, rules, or limits. You know, and in our culture, um, socially, physically, politically, that's becoming more and more possible in our culture. But, but even if you are, if you're able to liberate yourself physically, socially, spiritually from any externally imposed limits, at the same time, you are not free to liberate or free yourself from the spiritual structure of your own heart. You are going to give yourself to something. Or as Paul says, you're going to present yourself to something as an obedient slave. In other words, um, something is going to be your ultimate love, your ultimate source of security and significance. It's, and you're going to give yourself to it. And whatever it might be, whether it's your grades or your children or your professional accomplishments or politics, or a commitment to a social cause, or romantic love, or being thin, or being smart, or being on the right side of history, or owning the libs, or whatever it might be for you, but whatever it is, don't you see? That it, that's why the first commandment is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Have you ever thought about the order of the commandments and why they're in the order they're in. I mean, for instance, why didn't God say for the first commandment, hey kids, no killing or no lying 
or no stealing. Why, why isn't the things that we know are obviously evil, why isn't one of those things the first commandment? It's because all the things that are so obviously evil, all the, uh, the killing, lying, stealing, and cheating, all of that flows out of breaking the first commandment first. You shall have no other gods before me. Something other than God is your God. For instance, have you ever noticed how many movies um, there are that are all about somebody who gets really committed to a, a great cause, and a lot of times they're based on a true story. Somebody who gets really committed to a cause, but throughout the course of the movie, they end up alienating their family, cutting moral and ethical corners, or hurting people, sometimes maybe even killing people. Why? I mean, they were devoted to this really amazing cause. It's because something other than God is your God. And whatever it is, it's a false master and here's the really scary thing. That, the false God, the way it always begins is this. It begins by giving you everything and demanding nothing. It might start out, oh, I got a really good grade on that test. Or, ooh, I got a first date with that person I think is really hot. Or, I got that first big promotion. Or, I got this feeling of significance from being connected to a really meaningful social cause. But whatever it is, it's like, wow, this feels amazing. But then, you know, your next grade maybe isn't quite as good, or hot Johnny or hot Susie doesn't call you back, or somebody else gets the next big promotion, or you don't get as many likes on your next social share, or whatever it might be. But when that happens, you've, you've failed your God. And what happens? Down comes the condemnation. Down comes the cursing. Down comes the shame. You know what's happening? Your false God is punishing you. Every God, every false master says, serve me, and if you fail me, I will crush you. And they always do. But, but, and when that happens, we're, we're failing our false God. It feels like we're being crushed. And by the way, one of the ways you know that that's happening to you, to you that your false God is punishing you, is that you end up punishing the people around you. Every God, every false God will always say, serve me, and if you fail me, I will crush you. How do we get free from that? Well, that leads to our next point. We've just seen the first step in getting free means understanding your spiritual slavery. But the next point is we need to understand what it means to exchange our slavery. Now, what does that mean, and how does that happen? If you uh, go to the end of the passage, um, verse, uh, verse 21, Paul is saying, hey, remember when you were slaves to sin? Cast your memory back. He says, verse 21, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the, I don't know what translation you have, but mine says, for the end of those things is death. When it says end, that word is a word that simply means the inevitable result of something. For instance, imagine driving your car off the edge of a cliff. Don't do that, just imagine doing it. What's the inevitable result of that? You splattered on the ground. You know, a lot of times it's easy for us to have this image of God as this petty, spiteful, vituperative God who's always getting in a huff and saying, if you don't worship me, I'm going to punish you. And in, there's a sense in which, yes, death is a kind of punishment, but only in the sense that 
getting splattered on the ground is, is, is a punishment for driving your car off the edge of a cliff. Death is the inevitable result of separating yourself from the source of all life, which is God. And so that's why if you look at the very last verse, verse 23, Paul says, the wages of sin is death. He's saying, it's the same basic idea, but he changes the metaphor a little bit. The image here now is of a job, which is a transactional relationship. That means you put in the hours, you do the work, and at the end of the week, the inevitable result is your wages. It's a transactional relationship. Here's what's so amazing about the gospel. Remember, Paul is saying that at the end of the day, you're going to serve something, either God or something else. Those are the only two choices, which means it would be easy for us to think, oh, okay, so if the wages of, of serving false gods is death, then the wages of serving the real God would be life or as Paul calls it, eternal life. And we think that because we think transactionally. In other words, if you're a worker, we think, you know, here's how this works. I'm a worker. I have wages. I have rights. That means that I expect a wage at the end of the day, and, oh, and there's a limit to what my boss can ask me. You know, if you're paid to flip burgers and your boss can't ask you to mop the floor or clean the toilet, um, in a transactional relationship, you expect your wages and there's a limit to what your boss can ask you to do. So when Paul says the wages of sin is death, we expect the next thing for him to say is, but the wages of serving God is eternal life, but that's not what he says. We expect that because well, that's the way the transactional gods, the false gods work. It's a transactional relationship, but that's not the way this God works. Because what does Paul really say? The wages of sin is death, but the what? The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Dear ones, here's the message. The God of the Bible, the God of the gospel, is not a boss who pays you the wages of death that you deserve. He's a loving father who gives you the life you don't. And the only reason that he can do that is because Jesus already took your wages for you. You know, like I said at the beginning, this passage has really challenging language for us because whenever we read about slavery, immediately we're thinking about oppression, injustice, and abuse because that's what slavery is in this world. But what did Jesus do for us? I mean, if you look at verse 17, notice what Paul says there. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. Your translation might have something else. To the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Now, that phrase, standard of teaching, is another way of talking about the gospel, and we'll come back to that. But notice Paul, he doesn't say that, that the gospel was committed to you. He says you were committed to it. That word committed is a word that means to be delivered or handed over, kind of like when your postal worker delivers your mail or the delivery person hands over your takeout food to you. Notice Paul, he doesn't say that the gospel was handed over to you. He says you were handed over to it, almost as if you were a slave who was purchased and handed over to a new master. It's not something that you did. It's something that was done to you. It's something that was done for you. And again, we read this language about slavery, and rightfully, we're bothered by it. It's jarring to us. But, but the fact that it's so jarring to us 
should be telling us something about the reality of what Jesus really did for us because whenever the Bible talks about Jesus being betrayed by Judas Iscariot, that word betrayed, that's the same word, handed over. Or whenever the Bible talks about Jesus being delivered to be crucified, same word, he was handed over. Every time the Bible talks, that's what it's talking about. Jesus became a slave. Jesus was handed over for us. So at the last supper, the last night before he was betrayed, handed over by Judas, Jesus stripped off his clothes. He wrapped himself in a towel and he washed his disciples' feet. We romanticize that, but in that culture, that was a slave's job. I mean, that's why Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus ransoms us out of our slavery by taking our place in the slavery. Or we could say it like this, Jesus was handed over to slavery and death so we could be handed over to freedom and life. Friends, one of the most powerful illustrations um, I've ever seen of this at least to me, is from the movie The Passion of the Christ. If you remember the story, at the end of his life, Jesus was arrested and he was tried by the religious leaders. And then they, they brought him to Pontius Pilate, the uh, puppet Roman governor of Jerusalem at the time. And they, they send uh, Jesus to Pilate. And in the scene in the movie, Jesus comes shuffling in before Pilate because he's chained. And you could see Pilate really thinks he's the man he thinks he's the one with all of the power. I mean, you can see it in the way he talks, in the way he walks. He's like circling Jesus like a lion. You can see it even in the clothes he's wearing. Like he has the, um, the Roman armor, has the six-pack abs built into the armor. I mean, he just thinks he's the man. But in contrast to that, here's Jesus. He's beaten, bloody. He's, his hands are chained. His feet are chained. One eye is swollen shut. And yet, he's so calm so regal, so non-anxious. And Pilate asks him again, he's trying to intimidate Jesus. He says, Rex est tu? Are you a king? And Jesus looks him straight in the eye and says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would not have let them hand me over to you. Hand me over. Pilate has no idea that this beaten, bloody, chained man who's standing in front of him is the creator of the universe who spoke galaxies into existence and could incinerate him with a flick of his eyelash. No idea. And yet here's Jesus, creator of the universe, standing there before Pilate, beaten, bloody, chained. He was handed over. He consented to be handed over to slavery and death so that we could be handed over to freedom and life. Friends, at the end of the day, listen, every false god is going to say, serve me, and if you feel me, I will crush you, and they always do. But Jesus is the only God who says, when you fail me, I will love you all the more because I was already crushed for you. He hands us over to God because he was handed over to slavery and death. Now, what does that mean for our lives, practically speaking? Well, that leads to our last point. We've seen this slavery that is a new freedom. It means understanding our spiritual slavery. It means exchanging our slavery. But lastly, it means practicing a new slavery. Because when you realize that, that you've been handed over to God because Jesus was handed over for you, that 
that brings you under the spell of a love, a sacrificial love that it doesn't threaten you, it doesn't make any demands upon you, and yet it's far more captivating than any demand or threat could ever be because now you've been transferred out of a transactional relationship and into a grace-based relationship. What's the difference between those two? In a transaction relation, you say, okay, God, if I obey you, then I'm a worker. I've got rights here. There's, a, there's some things you can ask me to do, but there's other things you cannot ask me to do because I'm a worker. I have rights. It's a transaction, wage-based relationship. But a grace-based relationship, if you've been saved by grace, God has given everything to you, then you did nothing for that. That means there's nothing God can't ask you. And on the one hand, yeah, that's kind of threatening. But on the other hand, the more you come under the spell of this sacrificial love that's done everything for you, the more that, that you come under the spell of that love, that means that, that obedience is the result of a grace that's done everything for you. You want to give yourself to Him. You want to give your life to God. Because the, the grace, the sacrificial love is constraining you now. It's, it's compelling you now. Or we could say it like this. I mean, here's the big message this week is that grace does not remove the necessity of obedience. It changes its role. Grace does not remove the necessity of obedience. It changes the role of obedience because your obedience is not the condition for your entrance into God's love. Your obedience is the inevitable result of the experience of God's love. So what does that look like in practice? Well, notice that Paul says um, in verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Oh, sorry, that was verse 13. We're in a different passage. He says the same basic thing. Um, verse 19. Apologies. But that's good, because, and I'll get back to why that's good in just a second. Verse 19, uh, Paul says, Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Now that word members... I don't know what your translation says, but that word members is, we saw this last week, it's another way of talking about your embodied existence in this world. It means your eyes, ears, tongue, hands, feet. It also means your mind, your imagination, your emotions, your affections. It also means your relationships, your, um, your work, your money, your resources, all of your embodied life in this world. Paul is saying, you present that to God now as instruments of righteousness or instruments of obedience to God. Now, here's what this means. Um, if you go back to verse 17, and I said we were going to talk about this. Paul says, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you have been committed. Now, that phrase, standard of teaching, like I said, that it's another way of talking about the gospel, but it's an odd kind of a phrase. Here's what this means. Standard of teaching is a way of talking about both the story and the script of the gospel. Over the past few weeks, if you've been with us, we've been talking about stories and scripts. Every movie has a script that says, here's what each character says and does. This is how you act. And every script presupposes a story. Every script, you act a certain way because you're in a certain kind of story. So if the story's a comedy, then you act one way. But if it's a tragedy, 
Well, you act very differently because that's a different kind of story. Does that make sense? The, the script you live depends on the story you're in. And so, if the story you're in is, is the story of Jesus, and if that's the true story of the world, that's going to produce a very specific kind of script in your life. It's going to change the way you act. When Paul says the standard of teaching, he's talking about both the story of the gospel, that's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, as well as the script that results from that story. That's the way you would live if this story is true, and it is. So what does that mean for us practically speaking? One of the really interesting things I discovered this week as I was studying this passage is that this word standard um, is literally the, the, the root of that word is a word that means um, a strike or a blow that, that creates a form in something. So I was going to show you a picture of some hammered metal, a, a plate that has some images in it. And the, the result of when the hammer blow strikes the metal, it forms an image in the metal. Paul is basically, he's talking about spiritual formation here. The script you live depends on the story you're in. He's saying, bring your script in line with the story. That when, that when you, um, changing your life means changing your script to be shaped more and more, formed more and more in the image of the story you're in. And if the, your script, if the way you live is expressed through your members, through your embodied existence in this world, then changing your script is going to mean changing what you do with your embodied existence in this world. In other words, your habits. It's as simple as that. Now, the classical Christian way of talking about this for centuries is that it means adopting what's called a rule of life. And I know that sounds like kind of an odd phrase too, and especially for many of us, we might be thinking, whoa, rule of life, what does that mean? It's a little odd. A rule of life, well, first of all, notice it's not rules of life. <laughs> it's rule, one rule of life, but a rule, the ancient word for rule simply means it was a trellis. You know what a trellis is? A trellis is a structure that gets a grapevine up off the ground so it can grow and flourish. A trellis does not cause life or transformation or growth. It facilitates it. In the same way, a rule of life, it's a trellis. A rule of life is a set of habits that facilitate spiritual formation. Let me say that again. A rule of life is a set of habits, your embodied existence in this world, a set of habits that facilitate spiritual formation. You're not the one transforming yourself. God is the one transforming you. But a, a rule of life, a trellis, you're lifting yourself up, giving yourself some structure in your life to lift yourself up to God presenting your members to him so that he can transform you. Now, here's the thing we all need to understand about this. You already have a rule of life. Even if you're exploring faith and you're not sure what you think about God or Jesus or Christianity or whether you've been a Christian for decades, but you're a little suspicious about this rule of life language because, well, that sounds kind of Catholic and rigid and legalistic to me, and I'm not sure what I think about that. Mm. Every single one of us already has a rule of life because remember what we saw in the first point. We cannot escape the spiritual structure of our hearts. You are, human beings are creatures of habit and your habits, you have them. Your habits are already shaping you and forming you spiritually. You can't escape the spiritual structure of your heart. You already have a rule of life that is shaping you spiritually. So when Paul talks about presenting your members, all he's saying is, is be intentional about it. 
Make sure your script matches your story. Make sure that, that the script of your life is shaping you in such a way you're presenting yourself to God that, that your rule of life is facilitating spiritual formation in the image of Jesus. So now we're going to talk about that more in the weeks to come, but let me give you just a few basic ideas to help us get started with this. And by the way, what I'm about to share with you is nothing that I made up or came up with on my own. I've been very much helped by Christians that have gone before us for hundreds and thousands of years, and especially some more recent pastors and teachers that talk about spiritual formation in very helpful ways, especially talking about a rule of life. But you could think about a rule of life. You could divide it up um, into four parts of your life. Uh, one would be prayer and scripture. Uh, a second one would be rest. A third one would be relationships. And a fourth one would be uh, work and money. Prayer and scripture, rest, relationships, work and money. Now, if the goal is to be formed in the image of Jesus, well, then the question is, what was Jesus' script like? What did his life look like in these areas? Well, number one, prayer and scripture. Jesus' whole life was saturated in scripture. Memorizing it, studying it, meditating on it. Jesus' life was formed by prayer, both prayer with other people, but also prayer alone with God, solitude, silence. Beverly's teaching a prayer class right now this week. Coming up, she'll be talking more about contemplative prayer, which is a way of practicing solitude and silence. So we encourage you to explore some of these resources. But these are practices in the area of prayer and Scripture. Secondly, in the area of rest, what did Jesus' life look like? Well, he practiced Sabbath, which means taking a day off from work once a week. He practiced self-care for his own body. That means, you know, nutrition and sleeping and exercise and things like that. He practiced an unhurried lifestyle. So there's prayer and scripture, number one. Number two, there's rest. Number three, what about the area of, of our relationships? What did Jesus' life look like? Well, Jesus practiced emotional and relational health with other people. He practiced being intentionally in community with other people, and Jesus also practiced intentionally bridging racial, economic, cultural, and gender barriers in his relationships with others. And so if our lives um, are looking like Jesus and we're, we're creating this trellis, this structure, this rule of life to model Jesus, then our lives would be shaped in these areas as well. Number four, work and money. Jesus had a sense of calling on his life. He was constantly saying, the reason I came, the reason I came, the reason I came was to seek and save the lost. He had a sense of calling and vocation. You have been given gifts by God. Think about how God is calling you to use your gifts the way he's wired you and designed you in the service of others in this world. Jesus also was very intentional about the way he used money. We don't typically think of Jesus as somebody who had money, but Remember, he's the creator of the universe, which means he has eternal riches. What did he do with his riches? Philippians 4 says that he emptied himself and took the form of a servant. Jesus poured out his riches on the world so that, so that we could be blessed by his money. Sacrificial generosity is, is part of a rule of life in Christian spiritual formation. And, by the way, Jesus was also very intentional about um, using his resources 
to empower the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. When we think about our work and our money, we should be modeling our lives in the same way, that we would be intentional about empowering the oppressed, the poor, and the marginalized in our own communities. Friends, these are, like I said, we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come, but a rule of life is a set of habits that facilitate spiritual formation in the image of Jesus. So when you present yourselves daily to God every day, you know, when you present your life, your body, your habits, your whole being, listen, we got to remember, this is hard. It's going to hurt. And, and the impulse is we're going to want to bolt. We're going to want to squirm away because when the hammer blows start coming down, no matter how gentle they might be, it hurts. We don't like that. But present yourself to God daily. Let, let yourself be shaped by those gentle hammer blows of the kingdom. And, and allow yourself to be shaped and formed more and more into the image of Jesus. Friends, you don't do the work. God is the one who's doing the work, but, but you do have to show up. And I'll tell you this, even more necessary, the world needs you to show up for this. Because this, our world is desperately in need of seeing people beautiful and formed and shaped in the image of Jesus. Our world needs this desperately. Allow yourself to be shaped and formed. Let the hammer blows fall and make you beautiful in the image of Jesus. He was handed over to slavery and death so we could be handed over to freedom and life. Grace does not remove the necessity of obedience. It changes its role. Have you entered into this new service because you've been handed over from slavery and death to freedom and life? As the old prayer says, his service is perfect freedom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you this morning for the freedom you give us, Lord, a constraining freedom. Because your freedom is, is founded and based in your sacrificial love that you poured out your life for us. Lord Jesus, you were handed over for us. And that puts a, a call and a weight of grace and obedience on our lives that, that goes way beyond the, the kind of logic that operates according to wages and rights. Lord, you gave up your rights to give us the right to be called children, sons and daughters of God. So we pray this morning that you would encourage us and help us and empower us more and more to present our lives to you every day, Lord, to present our habits, our bodies, every aspect of our being to you as those who have been called from death to life and from slavery to perfect freedom. Help us and help us to stay still while the hammer blows come down and while you shape us in the image of Jesus, not just for our sake, Lord, but for the sake of this world, which so desperately needs it. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.